Reading will be taken from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and that's found on page 1007. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. There's an outline of the sermon, if that's helpful to you, so that's on the way in, if you like one, uh, great one. But as I get ready, why don't we just quickly move around, I'll give you 30 seconds to walk around to greet someone, especially those you haven't met yet. So let's do that. Okay, if we could make our way back to our seats. Now, it will be helpful if you keep your passage open up at Matthew chapter 1. I'll be pretty much working through that passage. Uh, But let's turn to God in prayer. Um, This passage we're all familiar with, I'm sure. But let's ask that we might understand it as it's meant to be understood. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we consider this passage that we might know you as you have revealed yourself to us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, how do you find God? Where do you go to search for God? If there is a God, how do you find him? Well, it's something that humans have been doing for thousands of years, since the beginning of time. People have been in search of God. And so different groups of people did this in different ways. And so you have groups of people who would go out into, into nature, into the country, where there are koalas and kangaroos and donkeys, and they seek God, they find God. And so for groups of people, there are people groups who would carve out of stone or out of wood images of animals, of cows, of reptiles, of birds, and call it God, call it their God. Or there are other groups of people who would search God, who would find God by looking up into the night sky, into the stars, into the planets, and that's where they seek God. That's where they find God. And so the Romans, they'll have Neptune, they'll have Jupiter, Saturn, that's their gods. 
And you have other groups of people who would look for God within themselves. Seek deep within myself and search for God. And so you end up with all sorts of different forms and kinds of gods. But tonight I want us to think about this. If there is a God, if there is a God who is supreme, if there is a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, the wise God, unparalleled, unmatched in any way, if there really is a God who did create this world, I want you to think about this. If there is such a God, to find such a God with our own efforts, with our own reasoning, with our own thinking, with our brains, that would be impossible, wouldn't it? That would be impossible. If there really is a God who is way above us, who is transcendent, and for us with our little minds to try to find this God, to discover him, that's a hopeless exercise, isn't it? Except, of course, if this God wants to be discovered. If this all-powerful, transcendent God wants to be found, then he will be found, then he can be found. If he doesn't, then it's a hopeless exercise. And so it follows on then that if we pursue the uh, pursue finding God, searching God with our own minds, our own abilities, it will follow then that we're bound to end up with a view of a distorted God, a God that is not really what God is like at all. Now, I'd like to give you an example of this. Now, this is an example of a God that's arrived at from human reasoning. This is called deism. Some of you may have heard of this term. Some may have not. It's called deism or it's called the clockmaker God. Now, this is a view where people arrive at the knowledge of God, that God exists, that what God is like from human reasoning, from observation of nature. They arrive at this type of God. Now, this is a view that became prominent in the 17th and 18th century uh, during the Age of Enlightenment. Now, it's called the clockmaker God because in this view, God is like this clockmaker. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen this type of clock before. These days, we have batteries, right? But perhaps your parents' days or your grandparents' days, there, there were these type of clocks where you had to wind up. Seen those before? Okay, show your age. <laughs> okay, so, so in this view, God is like the clockmaker God. He created the world, he winds it up, and he lets it go. And so this view is a God who is far, who is distant, who is uninvolved, who doesn't interfere with the affairs of human life. But is this what God is like? Is the true God like this God, a clockmaker God, leads us to our own devices? He's far, he's distant, he's uninvolved, uninterested in any way. He started us up and let us be. Is this what God is like? Well, this is a type of God if you're left to your own devices and you try to reason and work out. You'll end up with a God like that. But today we'll be considering this passage. Very famous passage, a passage we often hear and read at, at Christmas time. It's about the birth of Jesus. And it's a passage I'm sure you're all familiar with. Now as we look at this passage, my hope is that we'll discover what God is really like. Is God really far from us? Or is he close? Is God actually... Uh, uninterested in us, or is he actually interested in our affairs? 
So by the end of today, I hope that we'll all know what God really is like. And so let's consider this story. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? A fascinating story, a story we often hear at Christmas. And so firstly, looking at our Bibles, we we see here there's a scandal. There's a scandal that occurs. Now Joseph, we've been introduced to him already in the last passage. Joseph is described as a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. Now what that means is that Joseph has royal blood. He's in the line of the kings. And so in this story, we see this scandal. He's, he's been engaged or betrothed to Mary. But before they were married, he finds out, he discovers that she's pregnant. Now, it's, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to, to work out that if they're not married and she's pregnant, well, some funny business has happened, right? That's not right. It's not on. And so there's this scandal. But what does he do? I want you to have a look at verse 19 with me. Verse 19, what did Joseph do? Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, what's going on here? What's going on here? I mean, if Mary was unfaithful during their engagement, then why doesn't he just call off the wedding? Now, that's easy, isn't it? Just call off the wedding. Why is there this need of a divorce? And notice that he's actually called their husband already. He's actually called their husband. Well, this is where we need to understand the historical context. What's going on here? Well, you see, in the ancient world, the engagement or the betrothal, it was binding. It's a binding contract. When you're engaged to someone, it was actually as good as being married. You actually called husband and wife. And that lasted for about a year. The only difference is that you didn't live together yet. And so in this story, they're engaged, there's this binding contract, but Mary's pregnant. Scandalous. Now, according to Jewish laws, because of what Mary did, if it was adultery, then she could have been stoned to death, according to Jewish laws. Or she could have been just divorced. And, well, that's the choice that Joseph decided on, to divorce her, divorce her quietly so that she wouldn't be shamed. Now, just think about this. Just say you're Joseph. This scandal happens. You'll be really upset, wouldn't you? Really upset. I mean, your childhood sweetheart is pregnant before your marriage. That's heartbreaking. But what happens now? Well, now, the next bit in our story, there's this shock surprise. This shock surprise. Joseph, he goes to sleep. He has a dream. And an angel appeared to him. And look at what this angel says to him. Verse 20, so look with me, verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And so in this dream, Joseph is told by this angel, there was no scandal. It wasn't unfaithfulness. What happened was the Holy Spirit was involved. The baby inside her is divine is divine. I mean, that would be the shock of his life. wasn't unfaithfulness, wasn't a scandal, but it was the Spirit of God who caused this pregnancy. Now, I wonder if we recognize just how profound that is, just that bit there, that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That is extraordinary. 
Now, in human terms, when we think of something that's extraordinary or amazing, we might think about what happened on the 20th of July in 1969. Anyone know what happened that, on that day? Anyone old enough to remember? Yeah? Okay. What happened on that day? Yes. Yes, that's right. On that day, the 20th of July, 1969, man stepped foot on the moon. Amazing event, extraordinary event that humankind on earth could step on the moon. And, and Neil Armstrong, remember his words? He said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And that was what it was, wasn't it? Giant leap for mankind, for man from earth to step on the moon. But you see, what was more extraordinary than that, more profound than that, is what happened in this passage. God stepping foot in this world, on this earth. God stepping into his creation, far more profound than what man achieved in 1969. And that's what hap- what's happening in this story. This shock surprise that this baby inside Mary is divine. Is God coming in the flesh, bones and blood and fingernails, God in the flesh. But now we must ask, why would God do such a thing? Why would God decide to come into this world as a human being? I mean, if God is the creator, if God really is the creator, you expect God to just fly into this world with his armies of angels, you expect God to be able to do that, don't you? So why did God do that? And why come as a baby, as a helpless baby? Just think about that. The almighty, powerful God coming as a helpless baby needs to learn to talk, to walk, to eat, to run, just like other human beings. The almighty, powerful creator, a helpless baby. Now, why did God do that? Well, the answer comes in verse 21. So if you have a look at verse 21 with me. This is why God came as a man. So verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That is the reason why God came as a man. Now the name Jesus means God saves and it's expanding here. Jesus will save people from their sins. Now in the ancient world, your name represented who you are, what you did. That was your identity. These days, our name sort of, there's a little separation from who we are. Our name might mean one thing, but doesn't, doesn't really represent who we are. So, for example, when we were deciding names for our three children, Esther is a Persian name, it means star. We didn't really care whether she'll end up as a star or not, but we like the name Esther. Caleb, our middle child, a problem one. Caleb. Do you know what Caleb means in Hebrew? Caleb means Dog <laughs> means dog. We didn't pick that name because we think our middle child will be a dog. It also means law one, by the way. But you see, there's a disconnect between what, the, what a name means and who we are. But in the ancient world, what your name was, just identified who you are and what you did. And so Jesus here, this baby born, will save his people from their sins. Now, by the end of this story, that's what we see. By the end of this story, Joseph did, in fact, name this baby Jesus. He did what the angel commanded him to do. 
Now, there's something important about that for us to take note of. Now, last week, some of you asked me a question. How is Jesus the descendant of David? And how is Jesus the descendant of Abraham? I mean, that's the claim of Matthew in chapter 1. But you see, Joseph wasn't even the biological father of Jesus. So how can you claim that Jesus was from the, the line of kings, that he was from the line of David? He was, Joseph was not the biological father. But you see what happened here in this story, the naming of a child was in fact Joseph adopting Jesus as his own. So Joseph became the legal father of Jesus. And so Joseph, by naming him, was bestowing on Jesus Davidic descent. He was in the bloodline as by adoption. And so Jesus, given the name Jesus, adopted by Joseph because he will save people from their sins. But I think there are still a few questions we need to ask. We need to ask, why? Why is this saving business necessary at all? Now, why do people need saving? Jesus came to save people from their sins. What for? Why? That's the first question I think we need to ask. And the second question is, why was it necessary for Jesus to come as a human being? Couldn't he just save any other way without being a human being, without being coming, uh, coming in a form of a baby? And so the first question, why is this saving business necessary? We well, see, being saved from our sins is in fact our greatest need. Our greatest need. Greater than any other need we have. Greater than our need of food, of drink, of shelter. This is our greatest need. Now there was this guy who put it this way in a, a poem. It's written, a, written by a guy who, who writes poems, whatever his name is. He wrote this. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need is technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But our greatest need was forgiveness. And so God sent us a saviour. You see, Jesus is a saviour because that is our greatest need. But now I suspect some of us will still be thinking, I don't need saving. I'm actually okay. I don't need Jesus. I'm okay. Well, that would be true if you've never sinned. If you've never sinned, that would be true. But the reality is that we have all sinned. Now, sin is a dirty word, isn't it? We, we hear it. We don't like it. What is sin? Well, we all often think of sin as breaking some law or breaking some command, you know, stealing, murdering, hating, gossiping. That's sin. Well, that is sin. But you see, the, the core of sins, the essence of sin, is a rejection of God. You see, it's the dethroning of God. Don Carson, the theologian, he put it this way. To sin is to dethrone God, to take God off his throne and to place me on that throne. I am God. I run my life. I am the master of my domain. I'm the master of my own destiny. I am God. We dethrone God. That is sin. There's a rejection of God. And that is what we have all done. We're saying to God, you know, raising our puny fists, we're saying to him, go away. Don't bother us with your ways. You go and bother those Christians. Leave us alone. You see, this sin is something that's tainted all humanity. All humanity since the beginning of time. It's corrupted humanity since the beginning of time. 
And if you think about it, even children are tainted by sin. Children. Hard to believe, right? You think little kids are nice and innocent. Well, I've never seen one. My three kids, as a father, I never teach them to lie. Never teach them to lie. And Yvonne, my wife, never teaches them to lie. But we've found them lying. Where did they learn that from? Maybe play school or whatever else they watch on TV. But we don't teach them to sin. You see, sin is something that's corrupted all human beings, even little ones. And so unless we've never sinned, unless you've never sinned, well, we're all in trouble. And we need to be saved from our sins. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to save people from their sins. Now, what about that second question? Why did Jesus have to become a man to achieve that? Why did he have to become flesh and bones and blood to achieve that, to save people from their sins? Well, you see, for our sins, there is punishment for that. God will hold us accountable. We won't be left off scot-free. There is punishment for our sin. And who deserves these punishment? Well, it's human beings. You're responsible for your sin. I'm responsible for my sin. We are responsible. When God comes in judgment, we can't say to God, Hey, God, I know I've done some, some wrong things in my life, but can you punish that dog instead of me? Can you punish that cat instead of me? Well, it doesn't work, you see. We are responsible. Human beings are responsible. And so that's why Jesus had to come as a man. Jesus took the place of human beings. He took the place of us. He died in our place. And that's where the story of Matthew is heading towards, where Jesus will one day die on the cross, not for himself, but for human beings, for sinners to save them from their sins. Now, in the 4th century, there was a church father. His name was Gregory of Nazianzus. This guy, he put this this way. He's a, a great thinker. And he put it this way, that Jesus had to be fully human for salvation to work. He said, the unassumed is the unhealed. You see what he was saying? He was saying, if God did not assume complete humanity, if, if God was not completely human, if Jesus was not perfectly human, then he didn't die for us. He had to be perfectly human. And that's what happened. Jesus came as a human being. And so when God does return to judge that day, Jesus, who already took our place on the cross, will mean that we won't have to face God's judgment. Jesus took our place. There was a substitution. He had to be human to do that. Now, I want you to understand how profound that is, that Jesus will become a man and to take our place. Now, you've all heard of that great author, C.S. Lewis. Now, he put it this way as he tries to describe what it meant for God to send his son Jesus as a man. So just imagine this. Lying at your feet is your dog. So just imagine for a moment that your dog and every dog in the whole world was in deep distress. All the dogs in the world are going crazy. They're deeply distressed. Now, some of you might love dogs quite a lot. Some to eat, no, maybe not. But some of you might love dogs a lot. Now, if 
it would help every single dog in distress in the world for you to become like them, would you become a dog if that would help all the dogs in the world? Would you put down your human nature, your human relationships, your beloved ones, your job, your study, your hobbies, to become a dog to help out the dogs? You know, to choose instead to walk around sniffing at things and other dogs and cats, wagging your tail and not being able to talk or smile? Will you be willing to give up your human nature to be a dog? Well, you see, that's what Christ did. Christ became man. And what that meant was that he limited the thing that was most precious to him. And that was this unhampered, unhindered companion with God. He gave that up to be a human being for our sake, for our sins. So that's our passage today, very familiar passage. It's a Christmas story, isn't it? The birth of Jesus. But I want us now to think about the implications of that story for us today. What does it mean for us in how we think about God? Well, firstly, God sent his son into this world as a human being, perfect human being. And so what this means is that if we want to find God, if we want to search for God, discover him, know him, we don't go out in the bushes. We don't look up at the night sky and consider the stars and planets. If we want to know God, well, God has already made it easy for us. He has made himself discoverable by us, by coming into his, this world by his son. And so if we want to know God, then we must know Jesus. If we want to know God, we must know Jesus. We must go to Jesus. And this is what we see in our passage. So if you look at verse 23, verse 23, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, Jesus, when he stepped foot on this world, he is God with us. You want to know God? You go to Jesus. You want to discover God, you go to Jesus. And so for those of you here who do not know God, well, to know God, you need to go to Jesus. And you need to find out about Jesus from all that is recorded about him in the Bible. But more than that, more than that, rather than being a God who's far and distant and disinterested in this world, that's not the God of the Bible, is he? The God of the Bible is deeply interested in the affairs of this world. The God of the Bible interferes with the things of this world because he loves this world. And so when God considers this world, he actually grieves him when he sees people hurting each other. He's actually affected by that. It grieves him to see families broken. It grieves him to see marriage being redefined. It grieves him to see greedy and selfish people. And worse than that, far worse than that, it grieves God that his creatures, his creation, would reject him, would would not just ignore him, but hate him and are hostile to him. That grieves God. So God is affected by this world. God is involved in this world. And it's to these people, these people who are hostile towards God, who hate God, well, it's to these people 
people like you and me, that God sent his son into this world as a man, as a man to pursue, to win you over by his love, to save you from from your sins. But this is what God has done. In that first Christmas story, God sent his son to pursue us, to win us over, to save us from our sins. But I want you to notice something here. Do you notice that this is not for everyone? This verse is not saying everyone in the world will have their sins forgiven. It doesn't say everyone in the world will have will be saved from their sins. I want you to consider verse 21 carefully with me now. Verse 21. Do you notice this? She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. It's not all people. It's his people. And so if you want to be saved from your sins, then you need to know this Jesus. You need to know this Jesus. Jesus must be your saviour. Jesus must be your king. Now, if you already know this, that's wonderful, isn't it? That's really wonderful. If you don't, please consider Jesus. There you will find God. But if you already know this, what can be more wonderful than that? And I want to remind us to never downplay what happened here. See, for us to be saved, God had to send his son as a man and a man who died for you. Never downplay that. And I want us to leave, I want to leave you with this thought. I would never become a dog for any dog. Dogs are nice, but I would never become a dog for any dog. Will you become a dog? But you know what happened that first Christmas? God became a man for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story, for how you have revealed yourself in human history by sending your son Jesus as a man that we might know you and so that we might be saved from our sins. We pray, Lord, that all of us will see Jesus and have Jesus as our saviour and our king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.